Welcome to Adapter's Advantage, breakthrough moments that lead to success. Our podcast brings you insider stories of the moments that mattered, turning points on the sometimes rocky road to success. Here's your host, Mark Magnaca, president and co-founder of Alego, the workforce training and readiness platform built for distributed teams. Hi, I'm Mark Magnaca, and I want to welcome you to our next episode of the Adapter's Advantage podcast. Today, my guest is John Loduca. John's a business strategist who helps seasoned entrepreneurs define and develop profitable applications for their intellectual property assets. Another way of saying that is he's in the business of helping people like us create great content, but more to come on that. John's the founder and president of The Wisdom Link, an intellectual capital development firm where he's provided strategic and tactical guidance, resources, and end-to-end solutions for over 400 leading businesses in 20 industries. John's been featured in a wide range of uh, publications like Forbes, the Wall Street Journal, and dozens of trade uh, publications. He's the author of uh, The Thought Leader and founder of The Wisdom Network, which is a private community of entrepreneurs. So John, with all of that, when people meet you for the first time and they say, so John, what do you do? What do you say? You know, I really have the coolest job, Mark. And because you were a client, I, it's sort of fun to, to, to play ball with you in this, in this dialogue because you know what I do and, and we had an awfully good time working together. I have, I think, the best job. I have sort of Napoleon Hill's role. Uh, I get to work with some of the top entrepreneurs in the US, UK, and Canada and help them identify and package their secret sauce and help them to scale their sales process so they can take their story and, and really blow it out. Um, I've had a, uh, a career working with 25, 30 year veterans, folks who are top 10 on the main platforms for wealth management and insurance. And I never have to be the smartest guy in the room. I'm always the student trying to understand why they're so great. And what's so fun is often they don't know either it's a discovery for them. They're just been doing it and doing it well for so long. They, they need someone to pull it out of their head. That's what we do. You know, John, I love that. And when, what you just said there, I realized with what I'll call peak performers so often, they don't even know exactly what the subconscious playbook is that they run to get into this peak state. And, and I liken you sometimes to, um, having a great chef in the kitchen who's making a chocolate cake and, and that person takes a dash of this and a pinch of that and is mixing it all up, but they're never actually measuring a quarter cup of this, a half cup of that, and then documenting it. And man, is there power to actually having the recipe card to duplicate your own success. Absolutely. And I think for some careers, you're conscious competent because you're building formulas, you're an engineer. But the selflessness of outstanding advisors takes them out of their, themselves. They trigger and activate their gift actually by not focusing on themselves and taking their eyes off the commissions and not focusing on what is this going to you know, earn me. They're all in with the person across the table, which means they have no idea what they just said. Right. They have no idea what's actually happening. They're so invested in the other person it takes somebody to dig it out of them for them to begin to map it and turn it into a sales process. You know, I've seen that with you, John. I've seen where 
uh, someone literally says, uh, a third party says, wow, that was great to the person that you're talking to. And then they say, well, what did I say? <laughs> they don't even remember what it was, right? Not unusual, not unusual. And it's a commendable quality. I think the folks who kind of sever themselves from looking good just to be good, they just continue to grow. They let the client guide them to wherever the next expression is for their business and they keep evolving. And they just kind of connect on that level of commerce. If I'm making sense to this person across the table, I'll keep doing that. And then 30 years later, they're like, I actually have no idea why all my friends and my colleagues in my industry are making six figures and I'm making eight. Like, I don't understand what happened, but somewhere in there, I made some choices they didn't evidently. And that's just a joy. So I'm sort of like Napoleon Hill. I mean, I literally, I'm just like, I'm, you know, just across the table from these 800 pound gorillas, mapping process, packaging it into sales and communication tools and scaling it. And it's, it's, a, um, it's an honor, really. I feel really honored often to be across the table from these folks. John, when you say uh, Napoleon Hill, I just wanna know for our, our, our listeners who aren't familiar with him, uh, Napoleon Hill wrote a book called Think and Grow Rich. And what he's really most well known for was going to people like Andrew Carnegie and Rockefeller and Wanamaker and, and all of these captains of industry from 100 years ago and doing exactly what John is talking about, helping to figure out what are the patterns that they have, which in many cases they didn't know. And he, he assembled that into a book. Um, and, and what's interesting to me, based on my own experience, John, of, of working with you, that I think is relevant to many of the people listening to this who are in the process of creating content is that you have a background, not just in English literature, but also with acting and directing. And so to me, what that means is you understand both the, I'll call it the writing of the script, but that you know that sometimes what's written on a script isn't what actually gets performed because it's not quite right for prime time. So what have you learned in your business and how has that informed your thinking from your days as an actor and a director? You love talking about that. You you just think I do. I mean, it's yeah. <laughs> I also broke courses for a living, and I know how to build houses. But at some point, yeah, I was a Shakespearean actor and a director, and I don't know if I should be proud of that or not. I'm, I was kind of good at it, but got seduced into the dot com thing in the '90s, and just left it and went and followed my nose with uh, building technology companies and getting into sales. But I ended up finding out that a lot of the stuff that we did as directors uh, applies itself. And here's, here's a great example, Mark. So when you're a director and you're trying to get a performance out of an actor, there's a point when you just get kind of pissed off and say, look, I can't explain the whole play to you. I'm just gonna tell you how to say your line. Yeah. You have that opportunity as a director, you can shortcut that person's discovery, their internalization and just give them the line. Yep. Or you can actually slow things down. It's a larger investment but let them discover an innovative and personalized way of expressing the main idea. And sometimes mm -hmm. that's where you get innovation. Most of the industry you and I are in, wealth management, insurance, they've been spoon feeding tactics to people for 40 years. And guess what? It's not sustainable. You can tell a guy the script. What is the Mike Tyson line? Like the plan falls apart the first time you get punched in the face. Exactly. That's, yeah, sales. That's, right. that's sales. So you can't yeah. just teach them what to do. You have to teach them who to be. And as a director, honestly, you do learn to pull a performance out of someone. You can take the shortcut and feed them the line. Here's your script. Just memorize this. Say it like that. Or you can say, what are we doing here? What's really going on? And so when we started to develop the wisdom link uh, 
we recognize that why and how served up simultaneously are where learning content takes flight because it's, in, it's linked in the mind of the person who's the expert. But if they become separated, if they actually become decoupled from one another and they can be held out, it's the left hand and the right hand working in parallel. It's the, why do you, what are we trying to do? What's the mission? And then what are the tactics that you can apply to achieve that? And what's so exciting is just like actors, you can say the line this way, this way, this way, there's might be a thousand ways you never thought of before to achieve the mission. And that's where you get spontane spontaneous, innovative, crazy stuff. And then our company stopped being like, say it like this. And it becomes more like we're crowdsourcing best practices and building a composite of wisdom from the field, from all the people out there who get the mission, but are interpreting it uniquely. That's where the magic is, is when you see it take flight and they become what we call a wisdom-driven organization. Everybody gets the mission but they can participate in their own unique way. And that's, you know, that's a gift when you see that happening in an organization. That's where it just, you know, internalize the, the call, but they own their way of delivering it. So how do you help entrepreneurs to package their wisdom in the form of content? Well, thank you for the entree. I love talking about this. It's the thing I've seen the most in my whatever, 20 years. And our friend over at Strategic Coach sent us something like 400 or so clients to package. <laughs> so over 20 years, I just saw a lot of the same thing over and over again. And what I recognized was that um, most of us borrowed a model for organizing our little businesses from big companies. We borrowed the corporate model. And the corporate model is like a pyramid. You're at the top of the pyramid, you're the rainmaker. And you know that model, because I know you love history. You know, I came out of the railroad, the telegraph companies spreading west. You know, really moving from cottage industry to some other model because there was so much geography. So they started to squirrel information up at the pyramid, and it would distribute down, borrowing from the military, command and control. The problem with that model, when you're a small business and you have a layer of management in between, is it's not scalable. That rainmaker at the pyramid peak. Mm -hmm they are in their own way. They're the bottleneck for scale. And so what we decided to do was look at, let's make the business not around the person because that's a limiting factor. What if we productized? What if we took the wisdom out of their head and made it the central asset? And if that was the case, we shift from this top-down sort of football with a quarterback calling plays model, and it shifts to basketball where everybody knows the play and it unfolds dynamically and everyone's participating in it. It's more of an ensemble. And then that wisdom asset in the middle can grow. It can expand. I mean, most of the advisors we were talking to, they couldn't sell the business because they were the show. I mean, they could sell it, but it wasn't worth nearly what it could be. They couldn't take vacations without bringing their phone. And they're running a six minute mile. You know, they're, they're killers. They've been at this for ages and they're quite good at what they do. Right. So imagine the challenge of a 25 year old coming aboard, maybe a really good runner, maybe a 10 minute mile runner, not a bad run. But when the boss is running a six minute mile, you will never catch up with he him, right. or her. You will never ever be in the same time zone. They are 20 years ahead of you and they are continuing to race and they're investing in their career. They're going to programs like Strategic Coach. They are enhancing and improving themselves. So they're running five minutes and four minutes, and it's just going to become impossible for that team to work 
as a unified whole into the you know, challenges of the next era. Well, the wisdom-driven model is dynamic. It means that wisdom is, is centrally accessible, that you can pour into the platform and then everybody can participate in accessing it. So it's not like, well, I get smart because I hang out with the boss. It's we own the company. We are participating in making it better. We have a say, we have a voice. Our best practices are driving this organization. And so we built this software. Like It's like, I mean, look at what you're doing with the Lego. You've basically said, if we can get that wisdom out of the heads of the people in the organization, then instead of it just being top down, it can go laterally. It can exactly. and become a, a corporate asset of wisdom. The same idea. We're really looking at striking out on a new paradigm, Mark, because what we saw was so ugly for them was they'd reach a ceiling and then they couldn't grow anymore. Yeah. They'd reach like a, you know, a place where it was like, how do I scale? I'm, I'm out of hours. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm meeting with clients all the time. I'm doing business development. If they, if they had gone RIA, it was worse because they were like, I have to take out the trash. I have to deal with softwares and compliance routines and staffing issues and oy vey. I have all this stuff now. Uh, my income generating activities are diminishing while I'm playing manager and leader. Sure. And they found themselves stuck. So wisdom driven means, yeah, your corporate asset isn't you. How, what, do you, what do you find, John, just on that point when uh, you first explain this concept? So someone's hearing it for the first time and some of them might think, yeah, but I don't have any wisdom. What, what wisdom do I have? Wisdom is such a hokey term. I hate to use it sometimes, but on the other hand, it really is the real thing. Wisdom is basically you not touching the stove twice. That's experience and knowledge used to ensure you have a, a predictable outcome for the future. We have wisdom all the time. It's, it's, it's traditional wisdom, it's, it's accessible. It is um, the kind of thing that it goes into the day-to-day that you apply routinely. The difference is if you get into reading books, you'll get clever, but you won't get wise. You only get wise by getting experience. You ah. get experience by doing things what? Wrong. You don't get experience doing things right. You have to have broken enough eggs so ultimately, once you've achieved a certain amount and done enough things wrong, you stop running out of things to do wrong. That wisdom, that predictable, scalable operating system of doing things a certain way. Most of the advisors I work with, you know, eight-figure guys, they're very habituated. They're very consistent. They, men and women, consistently have these obsessive habits of how they do things. That's their secret. They don't know why they do those things. They just learned somewhere way back there that that worked. So they, they do it all the time now. They do it consistently. A little talk that they give, a way of interacting, they're habituated to those things. And if those things are collected and we, and we antagonize clarity out of them, well, what if you do it this way? How, we interview. So this is how we get it out of them. We interview them. Yep. And they laugh, Mark, because they all get territorial. So I'll ask them just to piss them off. Well, what if we did it this way? Can't you just do it that way? And I get lectured. That's what I want. And I get it on camera. It's and then great. All I go, bingo, I gotcha. You didn't think it mattered, but it really does. And there's a reason for it. You just haven't said it in 25 years, but they find themselves defending fiercely. Yes. Some stupid thing, but it maps back to a set of values. And those values inform all choice making in the organization. They're just unconscious of them. They don't see the linkages between, this is why we answer the phone this way, and some hoity-toity value that they have. 
Right. It sounds like marketing when we talk about values. It sounds like sales when we talk about tactics. Interestingly, if you link the two, you get why and how, and it becomes this really powerful operating system that they can scale. They can really teach juniors, the 10-minute miler, how to catch up because they're not just doing the right things. They're being the right way. They're, they're internalizing and thinking the right way aligned with values that mean even their most spontaneous and innovative expression, even if it's not in the playbook, they're still aligned. And so they sometimes innovate new things that are superior than what the old man created 25 years ago. And that's where organizations stay vibrant and vital as they're evolving. You know, they, they, the, the dynamic isn't, let's make robots out of everybody. We have AI for that. To leverage us as full humans, we have to teach them what's the mission and then Here's some guide ra- guide rails to follow, but just get there. And and I'll tell you, just for our, for our listeners, one way when John was talking about that getting fiercely uh, protective of it, and that's when he knows he's kind of getting to that at uh, hot spot, is if you think about Ray Kroc developing the very first McDonald's and saying to him, "I only want to cook the French fries for thirty seconds, not fifty-seven seconds." He'd spent a lot of time figuring out how long to cook them, and he didn't want it deviated one bit because he wanted the French fries to be the same in St. Louis as they were in San Francisco. And, and I think that's when, when you start to talk about that, you realize every single thing from the way the phone is answered, they all make a difference in terms of the client experience. It is absolutely true. And it is such a treat to see, like we'll get the CEO of a big company and I'll ask him some innocuous question about why do you have to smile when you answer the phone and you wind up getting a whole story about 1969 and his wife, his mom had cancer and he's pulling the red wagon in the snowstorm and he's selling newspapers and, and that's why we answer the phone with a smile. You think, I am so glad we filmed that. That's a corporate asset that everybody will suddenly, oh, I get what we're doing here. Like, you, you know, those are the gems, but nobody that's exceptional is unconscious. Nobody that I have seen that achieves great things does it without there being some very, very legitimate and carefully uh, curated reason for it. Somewhere in the archive, somebody touched a stove. And if you bring them back to that place and you resurrect that moment, man, you get story and you get script. And those two things are how adults like to learn. So let me pivot, John, to what do you see some of the biggest mistakes that entrepreneurs make uh, when, when they are trying to execute a content strategy? It's a really excellent question, and I gave it some thought. Uh, you prepped me well for this one, Mark. And the truth of the matter is most of them do what you and I are talking about. They run the very real risk of normalizing excellence. They cannot account. Their greatest strength becomes their greatest weakness, which is humility. We love them for being like regular Joe who becomes like wildly successful, but unfortunately without an antagonist to kind of map backwards, like what are those turning points and what are the things that shaped your outlook? They don't really know. And so they trivialize and then they make the mistake of saying some people have got it and some people don't because they cannot themselves account for it. They just assume it's innate. And actually, I think that's the mistake that they make sometimes when they're thinking about succession planning, hiring juniors, is they say, 
it took me so long to get here and so many chance occurrences. And I was mostly unconscious. I don't even know what I'm doing. There's no way for someone else to ever get as good as I am. And I won't even try. So I see that almost tragically. They're just so humble. They don't pay much heed to what they've got. The other mistake that they make is they think that they're going to just deliver tactics and that that's going to be enough. And so we have to trick them essentially into storytelling just by, you know, antagonizing and, and engaging them directly. If we ask them, hey, flip on the camera and just go talk to the camera. Sometimes we get really, really nicely polished garbage. But when we get on the opposite side of the camera and we, uh, we push on them a little bit, you know, they, they, um, they start saying what they really mean. And the last bit is, I think that they're uh, often the guys and gals that I encounter, they're looking for permission. They need the permission from us that it's time for them to say whatever the hell it is that they need to say. They've kind of been boxed into being socially appropriate and um, it, it, it chops them down at the ankles a little bit. And so we kind of give them a wide berth to say like, this is the place where you say whatever it is that you think needs to be said. Because I think that they've grown very sensitive they um, censure themselves. And that unfortunately robs the listener of actually understanding the real basis for their achievement because they don't want to offend. Now, I've got a client who's been wildly successful. He makes MDRT in the first three days of January. He's won Prudential's number one producer award seven times in a row. And he is just phenomenal. And he's 78 years old. Wow. But he is a very, very devout Christian, and it is a very strong part of his value proposition, just the way he operates. Yep. Uh, I'm very proud of him and very proud to represent him. His name is Solomon Hicks, and Solomon is an outstanding man. We had to kind of work through whether or not he could let his little freak flag fly. Is it time to just say, hey, look, like it or lump it, this is what I stand for, you know? Yeah. And that's, that's kind of the thing about permission. It's like... Um, we, as students, as juniors, we want to really know the scoop. We don't want sanitized. We have to let them know it's okay. You might offend somebody, but so what? The, the costs of offending a handful of people uh, are, are greatly outweighed by the value that you could do by being yourself, by being authentic, and by really shouting from the rooftops what you think is your secret sauce. So my question is, for people listening who work at a large company, and they say, I get it but I work at a big company. I know Solomon's been part of some of these, these big companies. What are some of the key lessons you've learned uh, to apply this content creation mindset you're talking about for a, a larger uh, corporate team? My, my belief about this is that what I'm talking about is, is magnified. That the idea of a wisdom-driven organization is only magnified by a larger group of producers who are able to improve and perfect and create enhancement and innovation against the template from the senior person. So what you end up with is this really valuable sample group to go out and break it and bring it, you know, into, into reality. What sometimes happens in a smaller group is, you know, you get the charismatic leader and this is the playbook and everyone says, yes, of course, but there's only a handful of bodies. You just don't get a big sample size to go out and, and, and express it. Larger the organization, the, the, the more you have small iterations. Look at Darwin. The species that evolve faster do what? They have more offspring. Offspring are like 
multiple expressions. Right. Multiple Sample set, right? <laughs> exactly. They accelerate yeah. mutation and more mutations means faster evolution. So the more, more people in a sales culture that you have playing off of a template, innovating, tweaking, bringing their unique value to it, the faster it evolves, the more mutations and the, hey, it worked. So we did this for a really large organization. At the time, they were the second or third largest independent tax firm in the country. And they gave us their one guy and we lobotomized him and put it all into our playbook software and gave it back to them. Yep. And we thought we were so great. You know, we were like, this, this is so awesome. Well, number, he was number one. Number two through number 20 started to complain, hey, you never asked us what we think. And I thought, oh no, this is gonna fall apart. Like we screwed up. Like I thought they'd be so thrilled. The number one guy, it's an entire playbook of how he does what he does. Right. This is so powerful. Everybody could get better. And, and they did, they, everybody got better. But the complaining, it was unraveling things. I thought it was a problem. It was just because I was dumb. I was so wrong. We ended up with number two through 19 or 20. We grabbed their stuff and made a mosaic of best practices. Mm. And instead of it being like, this is the one way, it was, these are the best ways. The Love expressions it. for various stages of the sales process by our best people. And it was so neat to see like, I'm the opener, I'm a killer for lead gen. I'm not very good at lead conversion, but Mark is. Let's get Mark's videos in there because he's superior to me. Yep. His results are better. So we can actually like test this and, and build almost a mosaic of, of capabilities. You, you guys are doing that. I mean, you know what I mean? So this is a great segue point just to talk to you about uh, a personal pivot point or a moment of learning in your life. You, you've made a couple of changes here. So what, what's, a, what's a meaningful one for you um, where it changed your approach to being an entrepreneur? I hoped that when you asked me this question that I would suddenly have a moment of inspiration. <laughs> I, I think that the only smart thing I did in my career was to realize my limitation and build a business that was about capturing the wisdom of other people. That was the greatest decision I've ever made. It took me out of being, you know, most of your listeners have never heard of me. I'm not a guy who's out there in the limelight. I'm kind of behind the scenes guy. And I love that. I love being the, the resource to these amazing men and women. And I think that was the pivot point, Mark. I never sought the limelight. I like to enable the helpers. And the yeah. men and women I get to serve, you know, they're doing a lot of good out there. And so I, I, I love that I get to play that role. It's unpacking the totality of who they are as human beings in the service of other people. That's what makes them great. It's the story of the red wagon when their mom had cancer, that's what makes them great. It's all of it. It's not, I say this, or we have these products. That's where the mediocre you know, thrive and they don't thrive. The guys who and gals who are at the pyramid peak, at the mountaintops, they bring all of who they are to the table. And so what we're unpacking is the entirety of their wisdom, their whole life story showing up in Selling insurance, which could be the most boring thing in the world. Right. Not when you talk to masters. We talk to masters, it's a calling. Yeah. And so it's just a thrill to hear really wonderful, tremendous people who do the same thing over and over and have for years continue to reinvent themselves by getting all the way back to that, that source code, that, that inspiration for them because of who they are as people. So when you try to get a team around that, 
you know, 25 year old can't access that story. He wasn't there and it's not his story, but the example, he can. The idea that what makes the guy at the pyramid great is that he brings his story with him, that young man or young lady can do the same thing, that they can bring all that they are, their passion, their inspiration, their empathy, all of that. They can bring that into the work that they do and that'll sustain them long enough to do a bunch of stuff wrong and live through it and get good. You know what I mean? Otherwise they crash and burn before they get a chance to get good at it and make a living. When you say that, John, you just, you make me think of um, Robert De Niro in the movie, The Intern. And you think about for someone who's had so much experience from being Vito Corleone uh, to being in Casino, to being in The Departed, like to being in all these movies, to then bring almost this sweetness as an old man, like in that role, it to be so good that you could be believable after having played all those other characters and that the audience who still remembers you for those other characters yeah. will, will play along with you. The like, whole time I thought he was gonna murder Anne Hathaway, but it didn't. Exactly, right? how, how could he do this, right? <laughs> and, and so I'm realizing like, that's the same concept for many of the people that you are, you're, you're dealing with, that you're working with. And, and it leads me to my last question. And, and it's based on this experience that we're talking about, what do you see as the most important skill that people need to learn or improve today? Um, I believe most sincerely that with the abundance of example that we now have access to, you and I are a couple of Gen X guys, you know, we're old guys, we remember analog. The people today have so many examples to get lost in the wake of other people I think they forget that you just have to do you. And so authenticity, I think, is the thing that most folks have kind of lost a little bit. The strivers forget to be authentic, that that's attracting. And I think seeing so many examples of who to be and how to be, I think it's easy to get lost in that. And absolutely, people can smell it and you are enough exactly the way that you are. You need to just like be, be yourself, just do a phenomenal job of being you. That is so corny. I sound like I'm talking to a third grade class, but it's legit. I see it all the time. I see young men and women and even grownups who are, you know, 30, 40, 50 year old people emulating and aping other people's behaviors and mindsets because they think it's going to work and it's it doesn't you know you can't stand on somebody else's shoulders and the other one is empathy i think to a large extent you know we forget sometimes we're working with other people with stories and so you know that's a thing in the industry that can um be so horrific and and demoralizing is the demands on the producers are such that if they're not careful they might forget that they're across the table from another full-blown human being and, um, you know, it's not a, it's not a wise crack that you're dealing with lives. And I think that it could, meeting a sales quota, meeting the demands of a sales culture environment, you can kind of lose sight of that. I have never really met anybody who is outstanding, who has lost sight of that. They still somehow bring it down to the real heart-based connection they have with other people. I don't know how they do it. It's sociopathic. They sort of separate the commission and the win and the getting the ring or being on the main stage and the achievement. But somehow or another, there's this sacred space they create with the other person. Yes. Authentic. You know what I mean? So it's true. true. It's so true, John. And I have firsthand experience with it. 
So for listeners who want to be great, they want to, they want to tap into some of that. How do they find you? That's a great question. I think the website's a marvelous route. Um, it's Wisdom Link, the wisdomlink.com. And uh, I think you can learn a little bit about what we're doing and, and connect with us. And, you know, as an invitation, I'm, I really do love what I do. And I, I really get a charge out of serving. Um, so if anybody who's listening would like to give us a buzz, we'll happily chit chat with them and help share introduce whatever we can do to support your listeners. Well, I do appreciate that, John. And when you used the phrase mosaic before, the more I'm thinking about it, when you pull all of these interviews together, we're starting to package them up ourselves now right. in the spirit. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and because there's certain of them thematically that fit together. And, and I'm realizing like, it's an amazing cross-section. And when you can hear these varied viewpoints from really talented people, things become clear. So with that, my friend, thank you so much for being part of this. And uh, I look forward to continuing the conversation. As usual, it was a delight talking with you. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week on Adapters Advantage, available on all major podcast platforms. Make sure you visit our website, alego.com, where you can subscribe to our podcast so you'll never miss an episode. If you liked this show, you might want to check out our virtual training kit to learn how to keep a remote team running at full speed. Go to alego.com slash virtual to download your kit today. Be sure to tune in for our next episode. And don't forget, one new idea can change your life.